We're going to come back to the Old Testament where before uh, the family and I left for Israel, where I was teaching several weeks over there at the Bible school, um, we were about ready to close on the early life of David and of the reign of Saul. So we're ready now to do that. We're going to be in chapter 31 of First Samuel. So if you'll turn there, that'll be great. And as you're doing so, and as we intend to conclude that chapter, I'm going to anchor us in a psalm that I would like you to pay attention to. And this will be Psalm 75. And um, just about midway in it, Verse 6, for exaltation comes neither from the east, nor from the west, nor from the south, but God is the judge. He puts down one and exalts another, for in the hand of the Lord there is a cup, and the wine is red. It is fully mixed, and he pours it out. Surely its dregs shall all the wicked of the earth drain and drink down. But I will declare forever, I will sing praises to the Lord, uh, to the God of Jacob, and all the horns of the wicked I will also cut off, but the horns of the righteous shall be exalted." So the anchor verse in its short version is the exaltation that comes from the Lord. He being the one that puts down one and he being the one that exalts another, raising that person up. This in essence is where we are right now in our study tonight in the life of David. Moving into verse 1 of chapter 31. Now the Philistines fought against Israel, and the men of Israel fled from before the Philistines and fell slain on Mount Gilboa. So this is our topography, our geography. We just left in the previous uh, chapter, um, where David had to move in force to rescue his family and all of his men's families, the mighty men. They, they ended up being kidnapped, and David had his life threatened, and as his life had been threatened, he sought the Lord. It was an important passage because in a time in which those akin to him, those who had pledged allegiance to him, um, they were averse now. They were against him. And David, it says, sought the Lord. And in the seeking of the Lord, he was given encouragement to make pursuit of the enemy. And in the pursuit of the enemy, he recaptured the innocent. It's important in this text of Scripture because it indicates now that on this page there is an enemy. 
They're the Philistines. They've been the lifelong enemies of Israel. They've been contentious. They have been destructive. They have been a force of evil against Israel. And in this chapter, they are going to be used as an instrument seemingly of judgment against Israel. This appears to be the epitaph of Saul's life spent in the last battle that he'll get to fight. And it is interesting because when you see this, the word that jumps out to me is Israel fled from before the enemies, specifically the Philistines, and fell slain. So for a practical thought, it's really important that we are able to determine that in time of what you would call imminent death, what is it that we're to do? Fleeing has perhaps the promise of escape, but standing and fighting has the promise of victory. If the outcome of either of those is the same, such as death, what is the biggest statement that we can make, and certainly what warriors would want to make? That in battle against their adversaries and for God, they stood their ground, and on the premise of a victory, they were guaranteed their life. Or in fear, fleeing, and ultimately dying in an attempt to escape. We're not going to escape death unless the Lord calls us up as a church, unless he, in the event that we theologically note as the rapture, calls us up out of this world, then in this world there will be a marker that says, here rests so-and-so. And he was noted for doing such and such. The gravestone that marks the place in which a body is embraced only by the ground. That seems hopeless, but it's not intended to be. Because of the fact that we are in a life battle, and there is a battle against the forces of wickedness, and God desires and has pledged himself to the victory of those who live on this earth and who have a relationship with him, then the summons right now is, where do you stand? For victory in Christ or for defeat because of the enemy? Israel didn't necessarily need to lose on this occasion, but it tells us they were not united, and it does indicate that they forsook the Lord. They didn't have their time of prayer. We don't have the evidence that in the manner with which Israel was to do battle that they were doing it according to the ways and means of the Lord. You know, they were trained to bring out those who were 
the praise officers of the people, the ministers who could sing and blow the shofar and beat the tambourine and march in order and rally the troops through singing. It's very interesting that that is the methodology of warfare. It was not as we know it today, according to the world's methods of of en masse and converging and sword play. It really had a spiritual intention of showing that God's the only one that gives those guys the victory. We can match them sword for sword, and every time that we do, they beat us person by person. They cause a hundred and a thousand of us to flee. Why? As they go back to their tents, trying to debrief, trying to evaluate, how is it? Well, it's because God was with them. The battle belongs to the Lord. The battle belongs to the Lord in these days presently. And the reason that we're to be encouraged in that is because seemingly in this battleground of a virus, we're giving a lot of attribute to it having victory over all of us. God would say that's not true. There's a scourge. There are consequences. It's not over. Seek me and the strategy that I desire to employ. Talk to me about how we as believers are to effectually call upon the Lord and to pray for those who we know are there doing battle. They're not running. They're standing their ground. They need victory, but they must have the security of prayer. Now, this isn't necessarily where all of this is going, but it's practical to me. The men of Israel fled. And in their fleeing, though they may have thought escape was possible, it simply says they fell slain on Mount Gilboa. Mount Gilboa, I was not able to get to, but I was able to get to one of the featured cities that will be mentioned in the scripture. And it became what we know historically as a Philistine stronghold. Its importance is ultimately the statement that the Philistines were going to make in their final assault on the last three warriors, at least noted in the scriptures, that were together as father and sons. Probably, I would say, that has merit. A family of brothers and a father sticking together, doing what they could do, and not running, but holding the ground that they had, ultimately to their demise. But we leave the rest simply recorded as perhaps a silence from God. What does it all mean? Well, we know this, because of it, transition was inevitable. And we also know, because we've been reading our Bibles, that David was going to be a man who would be raised up. Remember our anchor verse in the Psalms 
was how promotion happens. And promotion very often happens because of dramatic change that is imposed. There are changes right now that we're going through as a nation, as a culture, as a global entity, as a spiritually thriving community of believers. Every single one of us are being challenged in a change. And it's how you want to look at it. If you're counting your possessions, and many of us are in the inventory, and saying, what if I lose it? Some have, some will begin to. We don't know. But if everything's invested in your possessions, and yet God is not the possessor of your heart or your mind, what is it to you anyways? What is it to any of us? It's simply somebody else's problem when the day comes in which your life is extinguished. I'm not saying how. I just believe God for his word. I've seen the evidence in the graveyards that mark the particular areas in every place I've traveled. It's inescapable. There's a cross. There's a gravestone. There's a grass marker. It indicates somebody that walked this earth by God's ordination has been now encased in that earth. And the story of their life, whatever they were able to do, has been written. The question is, has their name been written in the Lamb's Book of Life? When that book is open, will they be found? Will that person be in heaven? Or will he, in the wastefulness of a time lived carnally, running to the encampments of the enemy, and rather than fleeing from them, signing up with them, rather than doing battle, compromising, at the end of their life, will they be found in heaven? because of a decision they made sometime to give their heart to the Lord, to join forces with the living God of Israel. So these men fall on Mount Gilboa. Then the Philistines followed hard after Saul and his sons. And the Philistines, it says, killed Jonathan, Abinadab, Melchishua, Saul's sons. The three brothers go down, notably Jonathan, who was the eldest and the one who lived truly valiantly before David and was one who acknowledged the work and anointing of God upon David, even to give him his sword and his royal robe. The age difference, as we've said before, was at least 27, 28 years. We could round it up to 30. So this puts probably Jonathan in this, his last battle on earth, probably at the age of 60, thereabouts. 59 or 60 right now. Saul was about 17 to 18 years senior to his son, Jonathan. So he's a 78-year-old man right now. 
But what we do see here is that somehow these men were separated from the army. So I think there's a point to make here. We're the army of the Lord's. We ought not be separated. Guess what's happening? <laughs> we're getting separated. Guess what God has allowed strategically to happen? We're getting connected. I would rather be with you than to be apart from you. But God's allowing through the innovation of media and by a force of the Spirit to summon wives and brothers and sisters in the congregation to all of a sudden make us what we never intended to be made. And that was these icons of communication via this platform, the visual. Some people thrive for it, intend to build a career from it. Coming back from Europe, it was the only answer and it could not have been pulled off unless it had been inspired by the Spirit and he working with, in my opinion, two critically necessary individuals to get this thing launched. We had no, per se, experience in doing it. And just to preserve humility, I know who they are. And I'm amazed at what they've done. And I will say this, that in times like this, there's no one better to be able to encourage you in the Lord than your family that are found in the church. This is a time in which the enemy will pick off believers because in one sense, they are separated. They've been effectively quarantined away from one another. But then here we go, we're together. So for you listening tonight, or eventually will be listening, you be certain to connect, not only with God in your personal private devotions, but do not forsake the assembling of yourself one to another. We're told to wave at six feet from each other and no hugs and get the sanitizer out, and it's all medically encouraged and I suppose irrefutably wise to do right now. But inevitably, it takes a toll, and Satan sees that. The enemy actually thinks that's pretty cool, that a virus has been allowed to separate us. But God says, I've got another strategy in which, by connection of face and voice, and the discipline of the children of my kingdom listening, they're going to be knitted together in the spirit. So well done and stay at it and be consistent. If this is where you are being fed, then this is where your heart is to be. And the evidence of a work of God in our church was that I was able to go with my family, Christy. We were able to teach over there and to tour over there and to learn even deeper things of God while the things of God were being well-tended by men and women of God here, connected. So we want to be praying together. So the sons are now dead. Verse 3, the battle became fierce against Saul. The archers hit him, and he was severely wounded. 
by the archers. These probably were fatal shots by arrows within his body. It would indicate that it would be not too long before he would succumb to these injuries. But the narrative also says that he was not confident he would succumb before the Philistines would find him and torture him and humiliate him, and that he was not going to permit. It is interesting because that has somewhat a nobility to it, that one would say, I'm not going to give the enemy an opportunity to humiliate me, to take what has been my lawful and spiritual position and, and degrade me. That's what Saul would say. But isn't it interesting, as king, he didn't want to be degraded, and yet we see a beautiful picture that we'll be celebrating in about a week, in which a king the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, said in his death, I will allow myself to be degraded, to be mocked, humiliated. I will allow my life to be expunged by my will at the hand of a cruel and barbaric people, both those whom were his own, who did not acknowledge him, and those who were assigned the task by the Father to instill in his body a brutality that none have ever known before. One king says, I'm not going to allow myself to be subject to humiliation, and the greater king saying, I was born for this. I shall go through with it. My life, when I've accomplished the purposes of my Father will be over in my last breath in which pleasure has been given to him for satisfying the need of being the perfect sacrifice for an imperfect and wicked world. That's the love of God. Pretty amazing. Saul said to his armor-bearer, Draw your sword and thrust me through with it, lest these uncircumcised men come and thrust me through and abuse me. He wasn't going to let that happen. But his armor bearer would not, for he was greatly afraid. And therefore Saul took a sword and fell on it. You know, sometimes people just petition and plead and authorize themselves to make you do what your convictions don't allow you to do or shouldn't. We have historical accounts in which, if you would, suicides have been committed or assisting someone to take their life has been authorized. Notably, a doctor named Kevorkian started that trend in which he became known as Dr. Death because he invented a system in which those who were dying of natural causes didn't want to go through with it. They wanted to welcome death quietly, anesthetically, numbed. And I'm not saying that 
death has with it the welcoming of, oh, boy, I can't wait to suffer. What I'm saying is that it led to people plotting their early demise when we have no idea that that's the way that God was going to exclamate their life. We have no idea if on the day that they chose to take their life that God would have said, I was going to heal you. It was one prayer away. It was one church service away. It was one hymn of praise away. And you took yourself out of a beautiful testimony. I think it's one of the things we need to be mindful of. Mothers know the pain that they will go through in delivering a child. And bravo and hallelujah to the majority of women that say, for this pain, even that seems to impose the death sentence upon my body, that child's coming through and out, even if it costs me. That's a statement. But the mentality that we have fostered in our culture is take yourself out, spare yourself the pain, and don't worry about it anymore. And so it's not simply the administration of clever drugs that put one to sleep and start stop the heart, but a violence to the body system through hangings and shootings, people self-inflicting death upon themselves. And that may be even tonight, somebody out there in this audience contemplating it because you're fearing the battle. You're fearing the change that right now we're all going through. And rather than taking hope in God, you're letting the enemy tease you with hopelessness. Okay, so it's 10 steps back for all of us. But God can teach us how to leap beyond where we left off. He can compress all of this. And from the point of misery taking us to the point of the marvelous, the Lord can do all of that. Our life is not to do with it what we want. It's to do the will of God as he desires, what pleases him. So this man refused to participate in taking Saul out by request. And sometimes that's what you need to say. I'm not going to assist you in ruining your life. I'm not going to agree to it. I will have nothing to do with it except to say, I will not participate in it. I'll pray for you. If I'm able to, I'll dissuade you. But I'm not going to endorse this action on your part. And so Saul, it says, took a sword and he fell on it. And when his armor bearer saw that Saul was dead, he also fell on his sword and died with him. See, he had the ability to say, I won't do it to you. Saul said, great, I'll do it myself. 
But then as he did it to himself, he set a precedent for what the other one would do. And we have no idea if on that day, that man at the loss of Jonathan and his other two brothers and Saul would have said, God, give me the victory as you gave Gideon, as you gave Joshua, as you gave Caleb, give me the victory. As you gave Samson, who said, let me die with the Philistines, but let me enact vengeance for you. Would he have been a remarkable story that we would have been able to read about? The last man standing on Mount Gilboa. But he took the persuasion and lead of no doubt his king and one who influenced him, not probably in how he lived, but how he died. You need to make sure that we're being influenced by how people are living for the Lord and not how they're dying in the world. We need to be correct about that. So Saul, his three sons, in verse 6, his armor bearer and all his men died together that very same day. And when the men of Israel who were on the other side of the valley and those who were on the other side of the Jordan saw that the men of Israel had fled and that Saul and his sons were dead, they forsook the cities and fled and the Philistines came and dwelt in them. What was once theirs that God had given to them because of the fear that overwhelmed them, because of the defeat that happened to those who were warriors, defenders. It just sucked their motivation out, and they fled the fortresses that were given to them, probably even leaving the vulnerable behind, and the enemy took up the void. Do you know that that's the desire of the enemy now, is to take up the void? So, we have the means, again, of not allowing that to happen. We ought to be able to say at the close of every day, at the beginning of every morning, I prayed that there might not be a void. I read the Word of God that there might not be a void in this vessel, this tower that the Lord has built of me by His Spirit within me. I haven't left my armor off. I've got it on. I'm ready with a sure word in season and out of season to instruct and to rebuke, to correct, to wisely give doctrine, to reprove. I'm ready. So I find this to be, again, what is an unfolding of the consequence and in particular of those who are of God giving up because of the difficulties or the failures of others. Other people will fail, but you don't have to let them be your excuse. And if you're excusing yourself because of the failure of others, you're wrong. And you ultimately are a victim of that thought, and you will err as a failure in following their example that isn't what God wants. There is one greater than any man, woman, or child that you admire or love, and that's Jesus Christ, your Savior, Lord of Lords.
So the Philistines take up encampment, ready-built cities, and it's theirs now. Let's not give the enemy any more cities. Let's pray for his defeat. Let's pray for how the enemy is using the virus to incite people into fearing it rather than fearing God. See, that's the other thing. I think that the world has a greater fear of a virus than they do in the fear of the Lord. And the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. And the only way that can be the resource of understanding this, at least on a scientific medical level, is to have the anointing of God to come upon the minds of those who have been skilled as artisans in medicine, in sciences. God can give wisdom and he can give resources and he can give resources, especially if we are praying that the strength of the warriors is restored by their ability to industrially express themselves. I've shared this before, but you don't take that hill when everybody's jumping into the same foxhole. A foxhole is a momentary place in which you get yourself together for the next ascent. Because one way or the other, you're vulnerable to the enemy that knows you're there and they're scheming how to get to you and pin you down in that hole. Or they know you're going to run from that hole and try to take the upper position. One way or the other, as I've said before, death is imminent. Do we live it on the premise of, if I go, if I take the next step up, I may have victory, even though I may die. If I remain here, the enemy is strategically working to get me anyways. And if I flee, my back is towards him. I won't even know. I may escape, but what is my testimony then? So again, just something to consider. One of the um, uh, people watching today for the devotional study at 10 noticed that on my bookshelf, um, I have uh, a metal plate that was, I believe, um, water jetted. In other words, it was cut out of steel or aluminum into basically the wording of Calvary heritage. And what came to their attention is the Calvary had fallen down and the heritage was left up. And I thought to myself kind of like, oh, you, of course that would happen. We're alive and, and people who scrutinize those things are going to see heritage. Calvary down, heritage up. And I thought to myself, what a good lesson. What a practical point to make. There is no heritage without Calvary. Calvary was down, heritage was up. But I also, on the reciprocal of that, would say this. But with Calvary, there is a heritage. There is a heritage. Without Calvary, there is no heritage. But with Calvary, there is a heritage. It's really a concept that we need to understand. Because it's precisely the place that God gave victory to all of us. That's the picture that we see. 
So those who now occupy the fortresses, the cities of the Jews, they're in place, dwelling in them. And so it happened the next day when the Philistines came to strip the slain that they found Saul and his three sons fallen on Mount Gilboa. And it says in verse 9, they cut off his head and stripped off his armor and sent word throughout the land of the Philistines to proclaim it in the temple of their idols and among the people. Then they put his armor in the temple of the Ashtoreths and they fastened his body to the wall of Bethshan. Now when the inhabitants of Jabesh Gilead heard what the Philistines had done to Saul, all the valiant men arose and traveled all night and took the body of Saul and the bodies of his sons from the wall of Bethshan, and they came to Jabesh and burned them there. Then they took their bones and buried them under the tamarisk tree at Jabesh and fasted seven days. Courage displayed when no one was left to give due respect to those who were leaders of Israel at one time. And it is amazing because this is the warrior spirit. We don't leave our wounded behind and we do not let our dead remain. Many have been killed going after their friends wounded on the battlefield. Many have suffered lifelong injuries going after their dead comrades that they might have a proper and respectful burial. Pilots have gone in to rescue troops that have been stranded while they were endeavoring to do a job and became overwhelmed with the enemy. And it seems to be the nature of man that we will not, in the decency that God has put in to man, and by the way, God has put in decency to man. It only succumbs to the whim of carnality and the willfulness and arrogance of pride and debauchery which follows those who do not follow God. But wherever there are godless people and there is a man of God, and I say strongly a man of God, the other can be strongly persuaded to not be a man on his own to be one who has forbearance and military bearance and respect for life. When we see that respect for life is not being demonstrated in component parts of our living system, that's godlessness. That's secularism. That's the humanist attitude. Or even, I think, as we one time mentioned just a couple of Sundays ago, the existentialist philosophy. I live my life as I will, to my satisfaction, to my pleasure, according to my philosophy, and up to the time in which I am nothing. I will do what it is that I want to do. And it's a pathetic way to live, even though many justify themselves in how they live how they will try to express that everything is going great. But they will find out in the last draw of breath, in the blink of an eye, 
which unfortunately should have been the twinkling of an eye. The distance between Gilboa and the city that we just mentioned, Beth Shan, is about 50 miles. That was the distance that these men literally traveled in what you would call the battlefield. So from where they at once were and moved towards Mount Gilboa, 50 miles. It's hard for us to imagine in our minds that kind of a battlefield, isn't it? To me, it is. So for these men right now to go in on a rescue mission, they literally probably, when it says traveled all night, it means probably from the time of the setting of the sun to the time that it arose, it was at least 10 hours hard marching to make it there. Now, if the bodies indeed were at Gilboa, that tells you the march. From where they are at positionally to Betshan, shorter. But however, however this information found itself out, that tells you the battle distance, but this tells you the risk that they put into to come from where they were at and where they were lying on perhaps the fatigue of the enemy at Betshan? Don't know. But in this, what we see as well as a picture, it's a picture kind of of subtle revenge because the Philistines would have never forgotten the shellacking that the Jewish people received under Saul by a young boy named David. David, who probably 14 years before this event, was the one warrior that stood up against the giant of the Philistines, Goliath, who was shouting blasphemies to God and words degradating the nation of Israel and the warriors of God. Saul didn't know what to do. He was cowered away in his tent when David was brought into him. And David was able to assess that even though you're putting your armor on me, it's not fitted for me. It's not right for me. And I know we remember this story, but the principle right now is that as as David was able to say, that's not for me in the battle that I'm going out now to do, he understood that without God, it would be no battle. He wouldn't even be able to come from that alive with a testimony. And the confidence that David had was simply in this. With one stone, it indicates he selected five, but it was with one stone, it was the first one that he hurled, that planted itself in the forehead of Goliath. And as Goliath had fallen and dropped his sword, David picked it up and took his head off. 
that was something that actually Saul should have done as a spiritual leader was to cut literally the head off of that enemy combatant in the name of the Lord. But he couldn't. And he couldn't because he did not have the spiritual vitality and enthusiasm and the confidence in God that David had. He had lived most of his life as a king, some 40 plus years, cowering and then expending his energies needlessly, errantly, in pursuing a godly man out of anger and arrogance of a fierce determination to pay David back for what? Nothing other than being the next one in line, the ascent. He was so jealous, and he was jealous in part because God had corrected him through Samuel. And so we need to understand as well that in times of correction, godly correction, we can become just like Saul, and we can live our life pursuing vengefully, calculatedly, the demise of another person who is innocent, truly in the eyes of God, and analytically really before us. But we've let the enemy get into our minds, and all we can think about is putting an end to their success, to their future, so that we might find ourselves exalted feeling better about ourselves. We're living in a time right now in which people just want to feel better about themselves. They want to deal with their bitterness by taking people out of the way, that they're faulting for it. Everybody wants to have a fault marker. This is who I am. This is why I do what it is I do. It's because of that situation, that person, and everybody's trying to excuse what it is. Their behavior is observable in, and that's poor, not admirable. But people want to say, look at me. Fear God, fear me. I'm coming after you. That's not the way it ought to be. God has built an economy in which there's plenty of room to be serving him and to be doing so alongside others without the unfortunate conceited attitude of protecting what doesn't need to be protected. And there's a lot of that that goes on today. It's one of the reasons why even political discourse is so hard because everybody is trying in vanity to express how great they are and how bad somebody else is. And it's wrong. Vocabulary is being used that children ought not hear and actually anybody in the area of communications should not be using as a decent person. Some worse than others. Some know that what they've said is wrong and others just flat out do not care. And this is all a sign. It's a sign of carnality. 
It's a sign of not being governed by the Spirit. I believe a person can be filled with the Spirit and be deeply aware of offending the Spirit, grieving the Spirit, quenching the Spirit. But the evidence of that is always what we call the act of repentance. And that was an area that Saul never could come to. He could never come to the point of realizing that he had failed in representing God to the point of confessing honestly that he needed help by God to do better. He needed to sit down and listen to somebody like Samuel. Samuel, I'm goofing up. I'm making excuses. I'm doing what others are telling me to do, but I know what God has commissioned me to do. Samuel, I'm sorry, help me. God, you anointed me king. Help me, I'm coming back to you. But even though David, as we have seen and will continue to see, will demonstrate faults, he will more greatly demonstrate faithfulness in coming to the Lord in a spirit that is contrite. That means deeply repentant, grieved, opened up with transparency about failure. And I believe that with the frequency that we exercise confessing honestly our failures, God increases exponentially faithfulness to us. He's faithful and just to forgive us of our sins if we confess our sins to him. So it is a battle out there. So let's remember the victory is the Lord's. And let's not give up, any of us. Let's call people up, text people up, email people up. Let's pray that God takes us up, but before he does, if there's stuff that we're to accomplish, footholds of the enemy that we are to take out in prayer and by the word and through the worship songs that he's giving to this generation, mine included, let's do that. Let's satisfy the requirements of God being a part of his army. Because remember, without Calvary, there's no heritage. There's no heritage. But with Calvary, you never have to doubt your heritage, ever. Ever be frightened of what God has in store for you and what he has stored up for you. It's both what you can expect in this life and what your expectations could never possibly imagine of how great a storehouse he has for you.